Welcome to Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. I'm your host, David Clark. In this episode, I'm speaking with Andrew Locker, managing partner at Metrics Credit Partners, an organization that manages over 3.5 billion Australian dollars. Uh, it manages that money for investors by lending to investors. And in this episode, we're speaking around about the MCP, the Metrics Credit Partners Credit Trust, specifically a wholesale investment vehicle that aims to make returns of 11 to 14% per annum, primarily through the income and the fees associated with providing debt to corporate lenders. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. I certainly did. I found it very informative. Please remember that this podcast isn't designed, nor is it an endorsement of any investment. Uh, people are encouraged to listen to this to the disclaimer at the end of the podcast and also to seek advice prior to making any investment decisions. Enjoy the podcast. Andrew Lockett, welcome to Inside the Rope. Thanks very much, David. It's good to be here. Andrew, perhaps you could start off by giving us uh, a bit of your background and and the role you currently have and how you came to be in that role. Yeah, sure. Um, so I work for Metrics Credit Partners, which is a business that um, myself and two of my partners established back in June of 2013. So my, my background was um, as a lender. I was a banker working for NAB for 26 years, um, doing what most banks do, which is looking to originate and, and lend money to, to companies. Um, so we... we saw the opportunity, I guess, through the GFC, where a lot of companies were impacted in terms of their ability to raise debt, and uh, largely when foreign banks withdrew from the market. And uh, we formed a view that the banks would really be subject to increasing regulatory pressure and cost of funding pressure. We saw an opportunity to set up a non-bank lending business that was in a funds management format. So we've, we've now raised capital from investors and we use those proceeds to lend. We have two ASX listed funds and a number of wholesale funds that are available to institutional and wholesale investors. And, and what size, just framing up the opportunity here, what size were the foreign uh, banks in the market pre-GFC, just roughly? Oh, look, I think they're probably around about 25% of the market um, and they largely fled <laughs> and uh, back to their home, home markets where, you know, you think about the UK banks and the US banks that were impacted, um, you know, often shutting up shop and, uh, and leaving French banks and the like. And so, you know, there, a lot of those banks have now come in back into the market. You've got a lot of Chinese and Japanese banks that are, are now quite active in the Australian market looking for opportunities to lend. But we work alongside those banks, often providing uh, credit to, to large companies, or we seek to negotiate and originate those opportunities directly with borrowers um, ourselves. And in today's market, would you be competing with the big four, mainly? Our our market really changes across the risk spectrum. So we do everything from very high investment grade lending, which is to large public companies, all the way through to providing more flexible sources of capital for companies to grow. If we see a company that's looking to grow and there's a shortage or having difficulty accessing capital, debt capital, we might look to negotiate um, some equity interest in that business for our investors to then participate in upside gains. And so you're looking to ensure that your investors are rewarded, their funds are rewarded for the risks that we're taking. So you're looking to negotiate good transactions, good opportunities to lend with companies, 
and you might be lending alongside the banks or you might be competing with them. Uh, really different, different situations uh, drive um, that origination opportunity for us. So let's take a little bit of a dive into the credit trust. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about that strategy, what it aims to do and how it tries to do it? Yeah. Look, I think we, we saw a lot of uh, situations in our market in Australia where often it's easier for some companies to raise additional equity than it is to obtain funding from a bank. Uh, but Australia is very much a bank-dominated market. And, and why aren't they getting that funding? Oh, it might be that uh, the level of leverage might be higher, or often it's often it's actually the regulatory impact on a bank that prevents them from taking certain commercial risks. So nothing wrong with the credit, nothing wrong with the opportunity to lend. It might just be that the banks are heavily regulated that prevents them from taking advantage of those transaction opportunities. And so what we sort of see in our market is often, um, you know, a company might have a great product or a great service, uh, a great pro project that is being undertaken, but the, the bank's uh, risk appetites might be less um, than, than ideal. And so, you know, those companies are usually forced to raise additional equity or, or, or other forms of financing or the project doesn't get out of the ground. So what we see is a scarcity of capital a debt capital in our market. And um, what, we, what we've formed the view is that if, if our investors are providing funds into one of our funds that is providing access to that scarce capital, then our investors should be rewarded with the rights to participate in upside gains. And so, for instance, if you're lending to a company that's strongly growing, and the earnings profile of the, of the companies like to, is, is likely to continue to grow, but the reason that the company is likely to grow is because they've got access to debt funding that our investors are providing, then it's our view that our investors should participate in that wealth creation that's occurring in that company. So we might negotiate to lend to the company, but we might also negotiate some upside sharing via a profit share. We might take options, or we might seek to negotiate an equity interest in the business. So our investors not only lend to the company, but they also participate in, in potential outperformance of that company. And, and that's most likely a, an equity participation, profit participation, yeah, uh, option warrant, yep. some yep. equity-like participation. And, and that in, in inside the credit trust, that's the type of loans that you're writing. That, that, that's part of the strategy. The other part is, um, you know, if I, if I think back to my time at NAB, for instance, pre- uh, GFC, mm -hmm. uh, the banks would have been able to provide subordinated debt or mezzanine debt to a lot of companies. As a result of the regulatory changes and the cost of capital that's flowed to the banks post the GFC, they've withdrawn from that market completely. And so often you might have a, a property development transaction where the, where the developer might be able to obtain a senior facility, maybe with a loan devaluation ratio of sort of up to 60%. Um, requiring 40% of the capital structure to be provided by equity. We might be able to um, take a view that we're, we're comfortable for providing some mezzanine debt, so subordinated debt, junior ranking debt, uh, to, the, to that project where you might take the loan to valuation ratio up to, say, 70%. Um, still 30% of the capital structure at risk to equity, but you're providing a higher yielding, higher risk component of the debt structure but for that, you get well paid because of the scarcity of funding. So mezzanine rates in Australia might range anywhere, depending on the risk you take, anywhere from sort of 10 11% through to 20%. It really just depends on the risk of the transaction. Now, for the benefit of our listeners, can you give a definition of 
mezzanine or subordinated debt? Are you caught, are they interchangeable in in your language? Yeah, uh, they they are. Uh, mezzanine tends to be a term used for property related transactions. Mm-hmm. Subordinated debt tends to be a term used for um, corporate type debt transactions. What it generally means is that you don't hold the first ranking secured position of a lender. So there is a so credit typically of, the big four. I one of them are in over there, over the property. Yeah, they might lend on a first mortgage basis up to a certain threshold level, mm-hmm. and then we, as a as a mezzanine lender, might take a second ranking charge and advance further funds. But at all times, as a lender, your role is really to make sure that equity is the first loss piece in any structure. Mm-hmm. And so, if, if if conditions deteriorate, you know, you you're looking to ensure that equity loses its value before your position as a lender might be impaired or at risk of loss. Okay. And and coming back to that specific strategy uh, around the trust, um, what's it specifically, so what 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 is it investing in and what is its objective in terms of return? Is it just these subordinated loans? Yeah, it's, actually, it's interesting. We've done senior debt facilities. Yes. We've done second-ranking subordinated debt or mezzanine debt. Uh, we've provided funding to um, into asset-backed secured structures where we've also negotiated an equity interest in the company that we've lent to. Uh, we've also participated as a joint venture partner with one of our development clients. So it's a real uh, targeted, uh, it's a fund that is targeted to deliver a yield to investors. So really what drove the strategy was a lot of investors have got um, public equity positions. And a lot, a lot of those investors are concerned in with, shares. In shares, yep. and a lot of those, a lot of those investors are concerned about the shares and the volatility of the share market, and how that might impact them. So they often might hold a portfolio of shares, looking to generate an income, but be exposed to quite substantial levels of market volatility. Mm-hmm. So you could have, you know, I think back to the time of the Royal Commission into the banks, and a lot of investors that hold bank shares because they are attracted to the dividends that those banks were paying. But during the Royal Commission, some of those shares fell you know, 25, 30% in value. Um, and so what, what our strategy is designed to do is to move our investors to that lower risk part of the capital structure where you're a lender, a secured lender. And so the loans may be senior ranking, first ranking charges, or you could be subordinated, but all designed to be predominantly your returns to the investors is income through the debt. Mm-hmm. But if we can negotiate then the right to participate in upside gains, we'll look to do that. But these are private private companies. Not, we're not going on the market and buying shares in you know, another publicly listed company. You know, these are privately negotiated um, equity positions that we might hold in a company where we lend money to that company. And the type of target returns you're aiming for around that 11 to 14% yeah, per annum. Correct. Net of fees and costs. Net of fees of costs, which in today's environment, I think another interest rate cut just recently, um, is pretty attractive in anyone's language mm. without the volatility that goes with equity. That's right. um, the breakup of that in terms of the returns, how much of that is the coupon or the yield or the income from those loans versus the, what I would call, equity kicker or the participation in equity in those private companies? It's actually interesting. The The best source of return for an investor is through the fees that we're able to charge the borrower. So that's certain income. You've lent, lent the money to the company. You'll mm-hmm. charge a fee. 
So an establishment fee or an upfront fee that is charged on completion of a transaction. Then another component of the fee, of the income that we generate for our investors is through the interest rate, so the coupon that's paid by the borrower. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of mezzanine or subordinated debt facilities are generally on a, on a fixed coupon basis. So it might be 13% or 13.5% might be the, the interest rate that the borrower has to pay, not even linked to the what's happening with the reserve bank rate. So the reserve bank rate may fall, but our borrower will still be paying 13 or 13.5% as a fixed coupon uh, to, our, to our funds. Um, then you have um, the other component is that equity kicker uh, that, that has not yet really um, been a, a, a source of return for our investors. So this fund was established in December of 2018. Uh, we run a bit over 300 million in that fund uh, now, and you know I guess for us it will take some time for some of those medium to longer term assets to crystallise in the form of gains for our investors. So we have a process obviously where uh, those assets are valued on a regular basis by external parties, where the valuations will start to flow through in terms of any uplift of, uh, of, of value. The interesting thing though, though is that um, as a lender you're going into a transaction looking to mitigate your risk of downside loss. Mm-hmm. So you're looking at the transaction to say, oh, do we think that you know there's a prospect of us losing any principal? If you get comfortable as a lender that you think that the transaction you're entering into means that you're expected to receive the full value of your loan without a potential risk of loss, then the upside that can be generated through the equity is available. So, you know, our, our expectation is you, you, the vast bulk of your exposure or the vast bulk of the assets that are held in the fund are loan assets. And so the, the, the small amount of capital that we have exposed to upside gains should deliver over time a meaningful um, uplift of total returns for investors. And as a proportion of total returns in five or ten years' time, you'd expect that to be about what sort of percentage of the total return? It's hard. It's, hard, it's very hard to, to give you a, 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 an answer on that because it will come down to market conditions at the time you exit a position. So, for instance, we hold uh, a number of equity interests in some businesses that we lend to. Um, the expectation is that those businesses will trade trade on for the next five years, uh, and over the next three to five years, we'll contemplate the way in which we might exit and crystallise our return of capital. And so, for instance, you would do that through a publicly listing a public listing of the company on the stock exchange, or you might do a trade sale to a another another party who's active in the industry. So a lot of things can come and impact the final valuation that you achieve on the equity position. But obviously we're monitoring, you know, the competitors in the in the market where those companies are valued to give us a sense as to what's the appropriate time to exit those assets to crystallise a gain for our investors. And Andrew, what would be the average term of a loan that you'd be making? Yeah, it, it, it does vary. So if it's a property related project and you're financing the construction of a large development, it might be a two year transaction as the construction's undertaken over a two year period. Um, if it's a corporate facility, say it's provided acquisition finance facility to a, a private equity firm, it might be a five to six year transaction. Um, if it's a business that's a private company, where we've secured, we're providing debt and we've secured an equity interest, we might be looking for five to seven years to hold that asset to crystallise the, the, the returns for investors. But through that period, our investors 
will be receiving an interest coupon on the debt that is outstanding to those companies. Now, you mentioned uh, sort of interest rates or coupon rates or the rates that you're lending out of in, in double digit percentage returns here. Now, one of the common things I hear when I speak to some of the quite informed investors is that, well, gee, what, what sort of companies are willing to borrow? Or what sort of people are willing to borrow at that sort of rate? Mm. Gee, they mustn't be a much good uh, company or a, a debt proposition if they're going to take on that sort of rate. Yeah. Can you give us some colour around the quality of the type of organisations that you're lending to? Yeah. It's interesting. Um, you know, often you're looking at uh, what I would always refer to, say, in a property development transaction, good or bad uses of mezzanine debt. So a good use of mezzanine debt might be that the the, um, the property was bought you know ten years ago, prior to rezoning, prior to obtaining a development approval, prior to marketing and selling a project. All of those components of the development activity, obtaining a rezoning, obtaining a development approval, designing the apartments, marketing and selling those apartments, are all going towards contributing equity value. So say that property was bought 10 years ago and over the 10-year period, the developers achieved those milestone steps around rezoning and development approval. There's an uplift in the value of the property. Um, then they come to complete the construction of the project. They're not going to make any more profit or, or generate any great return by having more equity in the project. And so they might look to release equity from the project so the use of mezzanine debt might be, I'll borrow a little bit more because the project's fully funded and I know what my return is. So what they'll be weighing up is, what's the expected cost of my mezzanine debt versus the cost of me holding more equity in this project? Could I redeploy that capital and generate a higher return? And often in a, pro a property development transaction, you know, developers are looking to generate 20% plus type returns. And so for them to sort of pay you know, 13% on a mezzanine position and redeploy that capital into their other projects is often a sensible use of mezzanine debt. I compare that with the sort of the bad use of mezzanine debt, which is a, a borrower that really, the project's too big for them, they don't have the capital, and they're looking to, the only way they can get the project off the ground is to borrow more and more money. Mm -hmm. You know, those borrowers actually need equity. Forced borrowers. Yeah. And so we're not a lender of last resort. We're not a lender that's going out there and, and looking to lend money to companies that really need to raise equity. You know, our, our position is we're looking to support good growing companies or sensible projects with appropriate leverage and, and, and you're being paid really for the scarcity of capital and the ability of our team to negotiate a good outcome for our investors. Talk to me about that scarcity of capital. Um, you mentioned regulatory landscape had contributed to this. Talk a little bit about what some of those changes were um, and how sustainable that sort of competitive advantage is and also the framework around foreign banks coming in, i.e. is this a short-term opportunity or not? Yeah, it's not a short-term opportunity for us. I think the market is, in, the Australian market is in transition to a to a to an alternative funding model. So if you think about it, the Australian market, Australia doesn't have a deep liquid functioning bond market. Most Australian companies are unrated, and we have what is relatively an immature debt capital market, market that's heavily reliant on the banks for funding. 
So then when you look at what's happening with the banks and you look at the regulatory drivers, so there's been a range of things. So for instance, the bail regulations, Basel II and three and others that have impacted the bank's cost of capital. This is right back to 2009. Yeah, correct. Yep. And earlier. So really what that what occurred then was it was the requirement for the banks to start to allocate capital based on credit risk. Mm-hmm. And so uh, previously, when I mentioned the banks may have lent for subordinated or mezzanine debt purposes, um, often they did that because there was no differentiation in the level of capital that they was had required. They put aside for yeah. it. And so they could, they could lend to those companies, charge high rates, and it was the same as though they were lending to a, an investment grade borrower the level of capital, the differentiated level of capital wasn't there. Another thing that's occurred on the regulatory environment is the way in which the banks finance themselves. So previously, the banks would have raised um, capital through equity and and wholesale funding and deposits. One of the regulatory changes was to ensure that the banks had a sticky source of funding. There was a requirement for the banks to move progressively towards a retail deposit funded business model. And so they were were required to reduce their reliance on wholesale bond issuance, debt funding, Mm -hmm. and raise their capital to lend through more deposits. And so you had a situation in the in the sort of uh, 2009 2010 period where deposit rates started to rise because you know the banks were looking to attract that capital and their funding mix moved from being predominantly wholesale funded to being largely majority funded through retail deposits so you know clients of yours that have deposits and, and those sorts of things that they were that's an attractive source of funding and you saw some changes around you know the banks being more stringent in terms of the ability of a deposit, a term, somebody having a term deposit, to break that term deposit early it became a, a more onerous process and often the banks wouldn't allow it. That's all to do with the regulatory impact on the banks and the way in which they fund themselves. So those sorts of things that are going through the market are not likely to change. You know, the governments around the world have seen a situation where you know, they, they realised that they were they were the ones wearing the risk of a, a default or a failure of one of the banks. And so as a result of that, the governments around the world have moved to ensure that the banks become lower risk, more safe institutions, so that the government bailout risk is reduced. And so changes to their funding model, changes to their capital requirements have all been imposed to assist or try to lower the risk within a bank. But what tends to happen is that the banks then can't make as much money as they previously did because they weren't doing some of the business that now is being done by non-bank lenders such as ourselves. And the foreign uh, lenders evaporating, you mentioned before you're seeing some of them come back into the market. Where is that at with regard to sort of pre-GFC levels to today? Yeah, it's interesting. I think the the bank share of the markets, probably, probably the four domestic major banks is shrinking quite a bit now. Uh, A lot of the liquidity that's coming to the market has not been, you know, historically it was European and French banks and American banks that were active in the Australian market and the Japanese. Uh, Now large uh, Chinese banks have come into the market uh, looking for opportunities to lend. And so part of the the reason for that is that um, the, the, the return profile that is offered from the Australian market is often more attractive than some of those banks are able to achieve in their home markets. And uh, Australia has a very favourable corporate insolvency legal framework, which means that it's actually a lower risk market and environment for a lot of lenders to lend. 
So if you think about the powers and protections that are afforded to you as a lender where you're a secured lender, in other markets, say in Asian markets or the US market, a lot of that uh, protection isn't afforded to you as a lender. So in, in, during the GFC, for instance, in the US, if you're a domestic borrower on a house and you're upside down your loan, i.e. that you, you borrowed uh, $900,000 on a million dollar house and all of a sudden your house is 600000 you could walk away from it in the US. So they saw mass failure in the limited, in, in the uh, residential backed mortgage security market, mm. whereas in Australia we didn't see that same level of failure because uh, you couldn't walk away from the, the loan quite as easily. Yeah, and in, in the context of a corporate, um, you know, the corporate insolvency framework goes to personal liability to directors. Sure. And so directors in Australia have a far greater um, onus and an obligation to ensure that the companies are uh, managed in a financially sensible way. Otherwise, they potentially risk litigation and, and, and loss to personally, themselves. Personally, they're coming after you. Yeah. Okay. And, so and it's a more favourable environment. Yeah. Plus, also in Australia, you can lender a lender can negotiate a restructure or a workout directly with a borrower without a court approved or a court sanctioned outcome. In the US, often if a if a borrower is in 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 distress, the the decision as to the carve up of rights between different creditors or lenders is determined straight through the courts with limited input from lenders or creditors as to that outcome. Andrew, what's the sort of average size of a lend that you're entering to in this trust? So it really ranges again from, you know, we, we across our business, uh, we will lend anywhere between sort of 10 to 150 million. Uh, and, and, and the reason for that is that we have a number of funds and they may have similar mandates or the, the asset might meet the mandate of more than one fund, which means that you can lend in a size and scale commensurate with the way in which a bank would lend which is important for our investors because what we're seeking to do is actually um, have power in the negotiation. If you can speak for a volume of capital and that capital is valued by your borrower, then you're able to negotiate better terms, conditions, pricing for the benefit of your investors. So having scale and the ability to commit in size and scale is important to drive uh, the right outcome. So our business model of all of our funds is really designed to bring our investors closer to that point of origination where you capture the fees, you capture the economics from the transaction to deliver a better return outcome for our investors. And because you can commit in size and scale, you've got greater opportunity to negotiate the terms and conditions to reduce the risk associated with lending to companies. And how many of the loans or what sort of proportion would be backed by, by property versus sort of corporate lends? Um, in, the, in the credit trust, um, it's probably a 50-50 type split. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we, we, we are corporate lenders with a view to cash flows, with a view to enterprise value and the, and the value of a company. So we, we spend a lot of time valuing the companies that we lend to and we have a good uh, understanding and process associated with determining valuation of corporate entities. Um, as it relates to property, you're obviously relying on third-party independent property valuations to support your securities and the value of the, of the debt that you provide against that. But obviously, in a, even in a property transaction, you'll take security over the company that you lend to, fix and floating charge. You'll take direct a direct mortgage security over the property. You'll often have personal guarantees from the directors uh, and the asset owner as well. So you have multiple uh, aspects of security. Now, in Australia, in the property market, we've seen you know, a huge run-up 
uh, over the last 10, 15 years as interest rates uh, have gone down to negligible uh, levels. But, uh, and then we've seen a huge supply of particularly apartment dwellings. Uh, is there any part of the market that you will not lend to at the moment or you're looking to avoid actively? There, there are probably not so much in terms of property, uh, although we we have been um, uh, conservative as it relates to retail property for some time. Like we have no uh, substantial retail property exposure, um, largely to do with our view that we're not a, a, a significant lender to the retail sector itself. Um, our, our concerns there is the industry is under, under continual structural change. A lot of the, the tenants' businesses uh, are often um, you know, being challenged through you know things like online online retailing models and the like, and so from our perspective, we, we've had a natural uh, cautiousness about retail property lending. Um, but really, what we've sort of seen in the in the last little period of time is that our business continues to focus on, and we continue to invest in good quality origination, which means that we continue to invest in good people, technology the ability to build good relationships with borrowers, with others in the market, seeking to originate good opportunities for our, our investors. So you know, we have an office in Sydney, an office in Melbourne, all designed to you know, spread our net in terms of seeking to find good good opportunities to lend. How do you source transactions? Yeah, we, How do most of them come to you uh, when you look back at the end of the year? You know, where, where are they coming from? Um, our business model is we look to build good long-term relationships with the companies we lend to, and we look to find opportunities to do more business with those companies. So repeat borrowing opportunities is a is a big feature of our business. But really, we, we work in with the banks. We work with a lot of corporate advisors, so large accounting firms and, and, and others that refer business to us. There are a range of independent debt advisors that also work with clients. We see a lot of directly originated transactions from relationships that we have with borrowers. So, for instance, we we have uh, extensive relationships with both domestic and global private equity firms, and we do a lot of business in that part of the market. We have extensive relationships with um, a number of property-related borrowers, and we do a lot of business with those with those companies as well. So, we're always actively marketing uh, to borrowers as well as uh, looking to market to investors to raise capital, but then obviously need to find an appropriate source and, and use of, of the investors' proceeds to drive that return outcome for our investors. So continued investment in building good long-term relationships with companies so that people see us as being reputable, good to deal with, commercially savvy, uh, flexible in our approach. We're competitive in terms of market pricing. All of those sorts of things give us the ability to have good long-term relationships with others in the market, which gives us opportunities to lend. And Andrew, is there any gearing involved in any of the portfolios or the credit portfolio no, the particularly? Fund, no, the funds are all um, our, our equity. Uh, so in terms of the credit trusts and others, there is no no gearing. So the returns we're generating are on an unlevered basis. And the geography of the loans, what areas are you prepared to lend in? Um, the credit trust is designed to lend in Australia, New Zealand and developed Asia. Um, we, we at, th at this point in time, um, our focus has been purely on lending to Australian corporates in Australian dollars. Uh, we think that as a result of some of the regulatory changes that are occurring in New Zealand, uh, that that may present some attractive lending opportunities for us, and we're exploring those at the moment. But at this point in time, 
uh, our focus has been on domestic Australian corporate borrowers. The market's a very large market. You know, we, we, we think that the Australian market is very attractive uh, from both a structural perspective, a legal and regulatory framework perspective, um, and, and quite frankly, our team have good, strong relationships and skills in this market. And uh, just some nuts and bolts for people on the, on the credit trust. Uh, incomes paid quarterly, I understand. Um, what sort of liquidity terms do they have? So investors, if they want liquidity, they go into portfolio runoff and, and they would receive their pro rata share of the assets as the assets mature. So if we're lending across a portfolio of, you know, uh, you know dozen plus individual corporate borrowers, um, as those loans and facilities mature, that's a source of repayment for, for our investors in terms of creating liquidity for them. Um, we also have um, an ASX listed fund called the MCP Income Opportunities Trust. That fund has raised capital from retail and self-managed super fund investors. The proceeds of those funds actually are partially invested in the credit trust. So to the extent that if we were to raise additional capital in the listed fund, then that would provide a source of liquidity for our investors in our wholesale funds as well. And inside that wholesale fund, what would be the average duration of that loan portfolio? Around three to five years. So you'd have last dollar back in about three to five years? Correct. Okay. That would be a worst case position. You know, yep. these funds are open-ended funds. Yes. And so we're seeing investors come in. So you yep. can match off an investor so there's not outflow. A market yeah, correct. To be made. And correct. this is a you know, worst case scenario, GFC type event tomorrow. You've got a runoff portfolio. That's it. That's it. True. I think the, the, the most important thing from an investor's perspective, though, is, you know, are you managing the risk associated with lending to these companies appropriately mm. to make sure that my capital is preserved? Uh, our focus is very much on capital preservation and driving the right return outcome from the, for the risk that we're taking. And, um, you know, that fund at the moment is generating, I think, around about 13.5% uh, total return to an investor, net of fees and costs. Um, and, uh, you know, we see some really good lending opportunities um, across our markets. And who do you compete with? Uh, who, who are your most fierce competitors? Um, it, our market is quite different. We compete with banks and we compete with non-bank fund lenders. Um, what we've tended to find in the credit trust is most of the non-bank fund lenders that we compete against really don't have an office or a setup in Australia. And so they, they tend to be offshore offshore groups that might fly into Australia, look for one or two deals a year and fly out. So, you know, we've got a, a, a pretty large team based in Sydney and in Melbourne that are looking to originate good quality transactions with borrowers, build those relationships. So we think we're in a pretty good position competitively against our competitors. And really in the credit trust, it's not business that is 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 really um, at risk of competition from the banks. It's not that part of the market, but uh, it's more non-bank uh, non lending funds. Andrew, thank you very much. It's been Thanks, really David. insightful and I've really enjoyed it. Thanks for joining me at Inside the Rope. Thanks, David, appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com.
Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.